Well, today I am in Belmont, which is just north of Sydney, and I'm joined by Gil Milton. Welcome. Yeah, cheers. Thanks. So this, actually been be. a, this has actually been a long time coming. So yep. I think I pestered you almost a year ago. To yeah, do I've been dodging you for a while. <laughs> yeah. And then I think we caught up at one of the HRA events in, uh, was it a few months, like three months ago, four months yeah. ago? At one of the yeah, the Valley, yeah. Yeah, Hunter Valley. And then... I twisted your arm to, to do something then. Yeah. And then we finally made it happen. So you've been on the hit list for a while. I've really wanted to come on. Um, and I should have come on early before the cameras came out. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that's that's the point. Now you're in the full the full production lineup. Yep. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, I know your background, but our audience might not. So maybe just to start off with, uh, do you want to explain like, how you first got in the industry? And then we'll get to where you are today. Yeah. Um, I was at doing my apprenticeship at Gininnens in Newcastle in Broadmeadow and I was a fitter and machinist. It was, it was, I was a fourth year and they had lost a um, rolling stock contract and they weren't putting any tradesmen on and I was in on a Saturday shift and I was young then, I was probably 21 and didn't read the paper on a Saturday morning shift at Smoko but Phil, one of the tradesmen, did and we were in the maintenance shed and he... He was looking through it and he goes, oh, I think this job would be good for you. And he was staying on, obviously. He was a tradesman. but um, And I applied for that job and it was an ad. I think I put it in LinkedIn a while ago. It was just an ad for Shawco Sykes. Oh, wow. And that's literally how I got into it. And I went and I was interviewed by uh, Clinton Tibble and Ivor Wills and um, Grant Swan in Moneybung Road there for Shawco. Yeah, so that's how I got into it in 98, uh, September. And so was there any sort of like, like you said mechanical, but was there any pump experience or anything like that? Oh, I'm sure it said pumping experience required or mechanical experience required. And you just turned up and said, I can turn a wrench. Yeah, I've seen a pump before and away we go. (laughs) Um, So it was, I almost didn't get the job, but um, yeah, got it and went from there. Just absolutely loved it. Just loved it. I think, you know, the first job that I went out on dewatering was just down the road here at um, Blacksmiths and it was a dewatering job and absolutely had no idea what was going on went out with like Chris Warmer and Vince Winter and those guys the old school Sykes guys and and Shawco and just banging spears in and a substation and at the end of the the day you know having it all hooked up and watching water get pumped it was just completely I was addicted from there yeah and so what what was your first role uh, fit up field service mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it was kind of mostly, oh, it was a mix of things, but it was, you know, probably two days a week in the workshop, one to two days and, and the rest field service. So it was so cool to get out on all the jobs and actually see the equipment being used rather than just being workshop based. Mm. And for me coming out of, um, Gininnens, which is, um, it's all workshop warehouse kind of factory based to then get in a ute at 21 and then go and service a pump at Terrible Beach or Charlestown Golf Course or, you know, go to a mine site. It was just mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. You always see people on LinkedIn posting photos of where they're working. It's like best life on the, on the road and taking a photo of the sunset or whatever it is. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. So that was, that was my first role there. And so maybe just for the listeners that aren't aware what Shawco was and uh, just want to lay the foundations of what that company was back then. Yeah, so I joined um, not long, so 98, not long after, it was the end of 98. So it was actually owned by Coates at, at that point. Um, Luke was still there uh, for, I don't know, Luke Elan for about um, six or 12 months maybe, nine months. Um, and from there it was then called Chalko Sykes because just prior, I think in 90, I might have this slightly wrong but I think in 96 Coates acquired Sykes Hire and took that part of that business and then just after that a year or 18 months after that bought Shawco and then combined the two and then you had Shawco Sykes Hire in that same logo as Coates Hire. Mm. And so what, what are they specialising in as a group? Oh sorry Shawco were obviously pumps and shoring and lasers um, was then traffic control with the main kind of parts and that, that slotted as a specialist business within um, Coates Hire as a separate division. Mm. Yeah. And so 
I know you, you said like you sort of fell in love with like the dewatering and the pumping yeah. industry and that's yeah. been your career yeah. for, for decades now, yeah? Yeah. Why do you think you fell in love, love with it? I think it's the, the, the customer aspect of it. It's so dynamic. It's so rewarding to kind of get the job done for a customer. It's a very job and finish type industry. So um, somebody's got a problem, you go out and solve it. And so you get that instant gratification where you're part of the, the customer's journey, that you know, you've solved their problem. Um, the idea that you know, a job could, you know, a customer could have issues one day, you turn up the next and the hole was wet and now it's dry and they can keep working is just pretty cool. Yeah, so I think I was addicted to that kind of, um, the speed of the rental industry I thought was, was exciting. And the fact that, yeah, like one, every day is different, although it's the same sort of stuff. Um, and I, yeah, definitely the customers and solving problems. I, mm. And I think that's what hooked me in specifically to, to pumps and, you know, it's, and it's kind of, I suppose it's niche enough that you know, people really do value your expertise in it. So it's, it's kind of cool trade to learn. Yeah, and I think whenever you get a customer out of trouble, they, they remember the yeah. people that, that helped them. Yeah, and then definitely. And then obviously repeat business and whatnot. And then, oh, we've got a serious problem here. Who do we call? And so then that rapport comes and then like you, you feel like part of their team to like de- design and solve whatever challenge they're doing in the dewatering space. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's exciting because... Often you'll get a, a call, not often enough, a long way prior to the job, but, you know, that's one of the interesting things about, you know, pump hire is that um, often customers will have a bit of a crack without it. Mm. So although something might be well planned, they might try without the dewatering and then, and then all of a sudden it's a, it's a rush to get involved. So they really do appreciate that kind of Mm. quick service and turnaround. So I think there's probably going to be one person or a few people on this podcast that are going, what is dewatering? So maybe, uh, maybe just for some of the listeners, if we were to summarize like why someone would need to dewater and what it actually, its purpose, just to give that more spill. So for dewatering, um, you know, it can be done a number of ways. Well paint dewatering, you know, some people call it spears. Um, wells, horizontal, there's a whole kind of um, myriad of kind of methodologies that you could use. But fundamentally, if, if a customer is in ground that's um, generally sand, is, is the easiest to dewater. It goes, you know, sand, sandy clay, and then it goes, you know, clay and rock, and, and, and you know, you just can't dewater that, you've got to sump it. But traditional well point dewatering um, is where a customer is digging in sand, they're in the water table. Um, and the water tables above where they want to get to. So you would install spears, well points around that excavation, lower the water table so you pump that, and then um, they can get on and do their job. So it's kind of like if you're a kid at the beach trying to dig a hole in the in the sand and, and it keeps collapsing, um, you, you need dewatering to kind of keep that hole open. Mm. And it's amazing how, you know, when you dig in sand, you, you see it in pool um installations in backyards where somebody will try and have a go and when you dig a hole in sand that the, the the hole just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the, the fence and the the sheds in the hole um second you put well points in it becomes quite stable and they can get on and do their job with a bit of shoring and whatever else mm. they need so and, and i guess because that this, no that's, that's pretty good so and i guess because there's so much planning and, and engineering that needs to go into some of these solutions it's not the traditional hey, here's a bit of gear, go rent it and give it back. We don't need it anymore. Um, no. And so it turns into like a site solution or a or a, an engineered solution yeah. where sometimes you, you won't even know what equipment or parts or people you need. Often, yeah. You, you know the kind of the, the basics of it. Um, you know, you're always going to want to put, yeah, generally speaking, you know, there's some rule of thumbs, you know, you're going to space them out one and a half metres, you're going to put the top of the screen two metres below the invert and all, you know, those sorts of rules of thumbs, but every job's completely different, mm. 100%, yeah. Yeah, and did that, like, engineering piece also interest you? Because, like, it, it, it technically it did, it yeah. did, it did mean that every job was a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it means it's, it's easier to add value, you know, for, for a customer because mm. you, you're taking a headache away. Yeah. yeah, and so if we look at... 
the dewatering industry and the pumping industry and the shoring space 20 years ago and then we look at it today like obviously technology has evolved yeah. and the quality of products and yeah. the way we design things like but what are the key differences do you think between that that period and how mature has the Australian market in this case unfortunately the daily rate hasn't changed much in 20 <laughs> years still kind of the same um, but 100% the environmental aspects um, of dewatering so yeah grant groundwater management has changed and the licensing application particularly in New South Wales has changed a lot I mean you know in the good old days um, you know in 98 and early 2000s you know you were still doing the right thing but you could kind of pump as much water as you needed to to get the site dry now there's all sorts of limitations on areas of influence and um, you know drawdown effects, settlement mm. and things like that. So there's a lot more control around how much you can pump and when you can pump it. Um, also, what happens to that you know water and how it's treated on the discharge um, is is pretty tight these days, where it probably wasn't as much 20 years ago. You know, people cared about turbidity, maybe pH, if that. Um, you know, you couldn't obviously have hydrocarbons and sheen in your water but now everything gets sampled you know mm. there's environmental scientists that that go out and literally sampling water um, the meters on the all the instrumentation all the water treatment gear now that's needed mm. um, and then the licensing is probably the last aspect i think you know the, the water one of the you know legislation we did quite a bit with the association on this and and teamed up with coats to try and get some solution for the horror industry but the you know the water act the legislation one of them is water Act 1912 and it's been obviously around for a while um but to try and get licensed now to do dewatering is not a five minute exercise and so there's you know six week if not longer lead times to try and get that done that was never a thing Back yeah then. okay yeah so like the planning aspect has significantly increased definitely jobs definitely yeah so that idea that you tr try and get away without dewatering um and then ring a hire company up to come and offer the solution same day or next day is a bit of a thing of the past now that's particularly in the last couple of years yeah mm. yeah and then what about the actual equipment itself has that evolved much over time oh it's definitely got better yeah, definitely. I mean, in the late 90s, there was still the, the which were incredible bits of gear, which things like the, I grew up with the, the VP-150s, the, the Sykes pumps, and I mean, they were absolutely amazing at, at their job, um, but they were, they were an, a, a vac pump with, with an oil, which would then get hot and you'd get moisture in it, you'd get carryover, and you get some fuming and, and things like that. So... Um, to do away with that kind of technology uh, over the last 20 years has been pretty mm. exciting, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously like the telematics aspect now, being able to get yeah. real-time real feedback on what's actually happening at a yeah. site as well then just completely changes the the element of both the customer and the, the rental company Definitely. in terms of their planning. Yeah, particularly on you know the sewer bypass, the instrumentation on sewer bypasses now. Uh, is is next level yeah so you're controlling pumps from from the office you you, know, you can tell whether things are ragged up you can um you know you can obviously see the the flow rates and everything that's going on with that so yeah. that makes a big difference do you have any like jobs that you remember as like ones that really stand out oh in terms of dewatering probably yeah um there's a lot they generally involve coffee rock so a coffee rock sits, it's like an indurated sand, really, really tight. It's almost rock-like in terms of sand. And generally, you know, water will skim off the top of it. So you can dewater quite well underneath it. And then you've got various strategies to deal with this kind of indurated sand. There was a job with, um, with Balti Civil up at Fern Bay. And um, the construction manager at the time and I, we really wanted to do it because of services and the way that the there were some synergies to to happen by putting in some deep vertical wells but unfortunately i spent the next three months of nights just banging spears in in the afternoon and trying to sort that job out so that was kind of character building but we got it done we got the job done mm. but yeah, there was a bit of work involved with that but yeah there's 
a long list of those jobs. <laughs> and so when there is a very complex job like that, is it is it billed as like a, a package of uh, items that have been done with labor or is it based on just time and materials on how much time you're spending or is it a fixed price? Like It's all of those, yeah. So I, I think that's the other change that's happened in, in 20 years is a lot of that style of work is getting very contract-centric rather than straight rental so it's changed the kind of model in that a bit mm. um so it, it var it really varies so it could literally be um here's my pieces of equipment um there's my daily rates and there's my labor rate and i'll go and install it um, whether you're locking on that labor rate or you apply a estimate of four hours ten hours mm. four weeks or whatever and then have an hourly rate on top of that that's that's the standard approach, but then it goes all the way to kind of almost lump sum contracts. Yeah, and then some people might just rent the equipment and then people have their own teams to do the installs, is that Yeah, common? Yeah, it's not as common, particularly in this space, which I think is what I like about it because you get to touch all the equipment. Mm. You know, I think your teams become better faster because you're the person doing the work. So particularly the specialist businesses. Like when we started Vortex Hire, you know, our, our install guys, although you know they might have been in the industry for six months had touched so much equipment and been on so many sites that you know it's probably equivalent to someone being at the big general rental companies four years in mm. terms of their exposure to that piece of equipment so yeah. that's what i like about it yeah yeah and so then so mechanic and then you got exposed to various different roles um what yeah. was that, the career from it's there? just it was cool timing i think you know um there's lots of growth in the industry. Shawco were expanding with obviously the you know the investment from Coates. Um, yeah, Richard Purser then was the general manager throughout that period of time. He just and retired, yeah. Yeah, just recently, yeah. living the dream. <laughs> Grand grandfather now, apparently. Oh wow. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. Um, so yeah, that was so the the roles changed from uh, so, you know I was a fitter and then a sales rep on the central coast so I put my hand up for that role and mark forbes and and those guys gave me a go um and then was lucky enough to go up to cost harbour in a area manager sort of shared branch manager role which was a bit of jack of all trades bit of sales and operations and mm. you kind of win a job and then go out and do it with the local sort of coats team um that was an amazing experience kind of moved out of home at that point and um you know swing past after work and see the beach up at Coffs, which was nice. Mm. So loved that experience and then ended up um, heading back to, to Sydney for the first time. So Newcastle, born and bred, and then went to, went to Coffs and then down for a state-based product manager's role, pump product manager. And I did that role for quite a while, loved that. That was awesome. So kind of the, was the um, product manager for New South Wales with Shawco, um, specializing in the pumps so with the sales teams and yeah. the branches so it was, it was good it was quite a diverse role and you got to travel a bit support people and yeah get out and see customers so so when you moved from being uh, in the service side of the business into the sales side of the business was that something that you actively pursued or was that something that someone said hey maybe you should take on a new challenge because i think a lot of yeah. people that work in service they they think it's very hard to move into sales and i always tell them like you know the products better totally. than anyone. Totally, yeah. And you know the customers almost better than anyone as well. Yeah. So moving into a sales piece just makes you like an expert instantly. Now you just need to focus on how you sell. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely harder than you think it is when you make that transition. So when you're, when you're on the tools, you kind of go, oh, those sales guys drink coffees and <laughs> just chill out. Um, I think when you get into the role, you realise how bloody hard it is to talk to people that don't want to talk to you some days. But the transition is better, I think, if you've been on the tools. Yeah, that you've seen all the problems. And you've got that... Matt Purden's a good example at, he's at MPE with us at Vortex. He, was, he came on board as our mechanic and field service and he knew all the customers intimately. He got them all out of trouble um, and it was a similar sort of thing that happened to me is that you'd, you'd done all the call outs, you know, you've done the installs, you knew the customers mm -hmm. from the ground up and what could go wrong with the equipment and how the equipment could get used. 
So it just, it's, it's a lot easier to make that transition. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. No, it's definitely something I, I try and push quite a lot because, yeah, when you, like what I've noticed, even just my exposure to like technicians, like customer asks them a question, they just tell them the answer. They tell them yeah. directly, like these are the pros and cons of the situation. Yeah. Customers love that. That's what customers want. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want like the, the sticker version. They don't. want to know, no, 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 tell me what's going to go wrong in this so I can plan. Yeah, don't gloss it over. Yeah. Tell me what's happening. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. um, so then so then talk me through the next stage. So you're at a product manager level. Yeah. So I was, I was doing that role. I feel like, don't quote me on this, but about five or six years, maybe. That's Sydney years, so could have been, <laughs> could have been half that. Um, and then... Then P64 happened. Yep. And it, we were, a, you know, probably a slightly different culture within Shawco. It still had the remnants of the, you know, the Geelan days, I suppose. And, you know, the way Richard ran that business and, and Matt Ball and, and all of those guys. And it just wasn't going to be the same. Like the idea of a, a mechanic that works on rollers in a... In, in, in a branch that was going to go out and do a sewer bypass or a call out, um, you know, just was completely foreign for me at the time. And I thought, this is the first time I'd been actually offered a role somewhere else that I'd consider, yeah, at that time. Mm. So. And so just to provide context to the listeners, um, we have spoken about this before on the podcast with Pier 64, but yeah. basically within Coach at the time, there was different business units, let's call them that, yeah. that specialised in certain things. And then you yeah. had the general rental operation and then that P 64 was to bring everything into one, basically. Yeah? yeah, six businesses into four, which was essentially the east region, west and north and south of Coates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so a lot of people left Coates after that, there was uh, obviously a culture shock, different opinions on direction. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's hard when you, when you do things like that. And even talking to Adrian Manning when he came on the podcast, he openly said that he, um, they probably could have managed it in a different way. So Yeah, I think it was, I mean, it was good for the business, I think. You know, it, it definitely um, was the right time for something like that to happen. I think when a culture is really strong, particularly even, you know, within, you know, I'd always worked for Coates in theory, but the, the culture was strong in Shawco and the same with Prestige and, you know, the same in Eastern region. Um, but to change that when you actually thought what you're doing was, was bang on right, um, I think is the challenge, yeah. Mm. It's kind of, it's always hard when, you're not making the decision to. I think that's change, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So the first time in your career, you are thinking about taking offers external? Yeah, I'd, I'd had phone calls and I never even found out how much they paid. Like I loved it there. Yeah, it was almost 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And then you left the industry? Yeah, not for very long, but yeah. yeah. Kembla Watertech was slightly, so it's a project manager's role in the big bore kind of CIPP division um, based out of Newcastle but the work was everywhere up and down the east mm. coast and it was a bit aligned because it was the sewer network so it was still organizing bypass work within the teams to get the lines in the ground um, so I did that for not that long probably six or nine months and then um, the boss that I worked for there Dave Fitzroy went across to amp control and and had a role at Cable Services Australia as the operations manager. And it was, it, it was power. So um, it was dragline cables, repairs and all that kind of stuff. And I like to know the product and, and, and really understand it. And I found that hard. Mm. Um, and I didn't really lock into that kind of new industry. So it, it, the experiences were unreal. Like, you know, to spend the time you know, really seeing what a project manager did in such a dynamic business like lining um, gave me a really good appreciation how to kind of service mm. those customers later on. And we'd, we'd done quite a bit of work again, you know, and continue to, well, I don't because I'm half-life retired, but, <laughs> um, you know, MPE continue to service those customers through their 
bypass and lining mm. activities and it just gives you a really cool insight as to how hard it is to organize yeah like it's you know it's the it's the weather it's traffic control it's you know the sewer bypass it's all the permits it's you know the, the, the people the trucks the wetting out the liner so that liner has to get impregnated with a with a resin um and then you got to try not the try and keep that liner cool mm, and just so, much, so much planning and, so yeah. much going on with yeah. that stuff so that was really exciting kind of piece to learn um but it felt a little bit aligned to kind of what i'd done because it was still around you know sewer infrastructure mm. and pumping um and the you know amp control absolutely amazing a huge employer in in newcastle really good business to work for it just it was not me yeah i really wanted to get back into into pumps and i think simon panther at that stage he'd started pressure right in victoria and he'd been going almost 12 months and i think i reached out to simon and said um do you want a hand and so i was his first employee wow um yeah other than himself and and mm. trainer obviously but yeah, so I, I worked for him in, in New South Wales for yeah. two and a half, three years. But that was cool. That was a bit of everything. Yeah, so then that, that sort of get, got you back into the back industry. In, yeah. And then um, and that was when the, I guess, the, the, the start of almost the more entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Because when you're working for a company that has three employees, really, partners and you, yeah. like you are the the bones of the company yeah yeah and so then then that's i think where you you get that that itch to say hey what, what can we do with this company and where can we take it and then obviously we'll talk about the journey from there but yeah uh, is that is that when it really started i think, think so i mean shawco felt a bit like that it had that kind of culture um and i was definitely lucky enough uh to have that cost harbor share branch experience which is like you're literally the one guy doing everything. So you're, you're talking to the customer, you're quoting it, you're, mm. you're installing it. And, you know, because the products were quite specialised. But, yeah, spending time with, with Simon at Pressure Right, doing that, yeah, you, again, you're doing everything, you know. When you're the, the, the only guy on the deck and you're kind of starting to employ people and getting casuals in and all that kind of stuff and you're pricing the work that you're going to win, um, your win rate's higher because you're actually directly in front of the customer and you're pricing work that you really want to win and you understand so I yeah. think that kind of process yeah leads you to wanting to do more in that space yeah mm. and so then how did that evolve eventually um do you want the long story up to you <laughs> we, we can we can talk through it um we spent you know, that was two, two and a half years kind of growing that business and, and kind of getting it cranking for, for Simon and Trina. And I thought we might have been able to kind of scale it a bit more and get some structure around it. And I don't think that was going to happen. That's sometimes in family businesses is not what the business is about. And at the time, you know, we were having some issues with Isla wasn't quite born, a middle one. And I was doing bypasses in Sydney. And I really needed to get home. And, and Simon said, what do you need? I said, I kind of need to get home. Can you send someone up from, from Melbourne? And no one came. And Hill's brother, so my brother-in-law, Chris Buckley, he, he was visiting Hill in, in hospital. And he said, he said why doesn't... I wasn't Gil going to do his own thing. And that's literally how that kind of got rolling. And he had a business called Field Maintenance Services and Systems um, up the valley. And I'm like, no, I'd, I'm not really into kind of working for myself. That's not my thing. And he was really keen to kind of do something. And, and, and that's literally how, how it happened. It was just, a, I suppose, a, a break in alignment um, mm. and, and what we could kind of do and that's how kind of vortex hire and all that started wow so yeah. so vortex hire so you started that by yourself or you had a business partner when you first so vortex hire was with um chris buckley and 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 his wife leanne um and hill and i so we got that kind of together so we kind of splitted the split the duties up with what we we're sort of good at mm -hmm. um 
And then we started at the same time, we started Pump Affinity. So Vortex Hire actually held the, the assets and Pump Affinity, um, in our case, did, did the work, so executed. So, you know, was customer facing, employed people, um, you know, had all the systems in place to operate and then yeah, Vortex Hire effectively in, in, at, at the start um, held assets. Yeah. And so Chris kept doing his thing with field maintenance and I was doing um, Pump Affinity. And then we had this Vortex Hire, that the assets were branded Vortex Hire. And then at the end of the month, I would fingers and toes have to invoice Vortex Hire to Pump Affinity and Pump Affinity to yeah. the customer. And uh, you know that's one of the biggest wake up calls when you're kind of reintroducing a, a rental software system is you got to do it faster than you kind of think, um, yeah. particularly when you're doing that kind of stuff. Uh, we then, um, that was 2011, we kicked that off and then 2013 we, we merged them basically. So we effectively started trading out of Vortex Hire and um, you know, f field maintenance services, their business came in and, and pump affinities and mm. we just started. So that was 2013. Yeah. So then, so that's the point where you were truly in that entrepreneurial stage where you were responsible for a P&L and running the yep. business and employing people yep. and, and equity within the business and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So, so what were the first challenges do you think you really like faced when that happened? Uh, at the first job we went on the customer went under <laughs> okay that's a good start yep yep 130 grand and they still owe us 100 really wow yeah first job so we i think we did a it was the first job we'd won i think we had an, another little job in between but it's just down the road here i've i refuse to get um fuel at that service station <laughs> it's the service station at belmont south the oh, shell so i won't go there on the way back no i don't feel <laughs> up there um, it's not Shell's fault, but anyway, uh, unfortunately, the, the customer went un under and I couldn't, I wouldn't have done anything different. They were a good customer. They'd been around forever and circumstances, they just kind of went under. And unfortunately, that was kind of our first job at the time. But that was probably one of the really kind of early lessons in, in the kind of how you kind of gear the business. We were lucky. We started from scratch and we were fairly organic about our kind of costs and our growth so you know things didn't get out of hand so we could sort of wear it and track through all right um you know and i think then it's working out what you want to kind of focus on like for us it was to make sure that we stayed true to to the, to the customers and the markets that um, we wanted to it's easy to get distracted and go oh let's let's win a job in tip a borrower or something like that mm. and then the job might look good but you're still going to service that customer the same way so if something breaks down for example you've got to pack all your business up and go out there and kind of sort that problem out so it was kind of really one of the challenges was is really kind of making sure that you kind of locked in on your core and knew exactly what you're going to say yes to and probably more importantly what to say no to yeah. Um, so, so when that happened, when that customer went under and your first job, were you sort of questioning what you were doing at that point? No, strangely enough. Yeah. I, um, I generally, I used to check in with Hillary and say, how are we going? And she'd say, okay. And, and then, uh, and then we kept going. So I was very lucky that, um, we had a, a few core customers at the time that had, cause we were quite a niche business, um, that had work in our space and, no, we just, we, we kept going. We, yeah, we were resolved ahead. on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, so how much did that business grow then? Um, so we, we started from literally scratch, negative 100 grand um, on that first job. And, you know, we grew that. We ended up with about, you know, seven employees by, you know, seven or eight employees by 2015. Um, you know, it was still a small business. You know, we, we had a workshop up in um, Beresfield, so our branch was in Barrow, Arunga Drive, and we, we had revenues of, I don't know, about four million or something like that at, at that stage. Um, quite a number of assets, mainly around, uh, you know, we had piston pumps for, for deep watering, we had some 
you know, 150 and so Sykes CP150 is 220Is. Um, we had probably a fleet of about, I don't know, 60 assets at that stage. And um, that was that, that's where we got to with that. And, and at that time, I think we got in the back end of everybody splitting apart at P64. And th then, you know, you had the likes of Pressurite and, and those businesses that re-specialised in, in pumping. We were probably at the, not the back end of it, but at, at that point, um, you were starting to see, you know, people like, I suppose, Kenna's doing, you know, relaunching their, you know, pump and power. Um, you know, Xylem kind of refocusing on that kind of specialised rental space. Um, you know, Coates. You know, now quite a bit of time have gone past since P64, starting to think about, um, you know, what I think today is, is that engineering solutions with mm -hmm. Rafi and those guys. Um, MPE as well. You know, there was a number of companies that were sp specialised in that space. But we probably had, we had a good market coverage within Newcastle Central Coast. We won most jobs that we went for and that we wanted, but we probably had the shallowest pockets. Uh, so at that point, we then decided that what we wanted to do is, is fortify ourselves a little bit and have a bit of a look around it to see what we could do. And that's how we, that's how we met Steve and, and Andrew and Matt Beach and Carnegie. So in 2015, yeah, got a phone call from Steve Donnelly and he said, um, I, I remember exactly where I was sitting, I remember the phone call. And he said, oh, it's um, Steve Donnelly, do you know who I am? And only Steve can say that in, 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 in a, a nice, beautiful, humble way that you don't think anything else of. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know who you are, yeah. And he said, I just wanted to catch up and Andrew Aiken and, and himself came up and caught up for, for coffee in 2015. Yeah. So we did that process. Um, I think we did... I think we signed the CA in about September and we had completion by, I think, the 22nd of December. So, yeah, it was just a, a quick, easy process and the DD was, you know, quick. So, like, I, I would work all day, you know, I'd have email responses, I'd respond pretty much overnight and then there'd be more kind of questions and follow-up and stuff the next day mm -hmm. and then I'd respond. So, we turned it around quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a kind of quite a quite a seamless process. Yeah, mm. he's definitely one of the like he's obviously an icon within the, the yeah. industry and, and the influence, but it still like amazes me how humble he yeah. is as a person. I think that's probably part of why he has been so successful. Yeah, and he can just and he can talk at any level and mm. make anyone feel comfortable. Yeah, I mean Andrew's the same, but. Yeah, he's got definitely a style. I, sometimes I kind of want some of um, Steve's niceness to <laughs> rub off, you know, because he's just, yeah, amazing on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, he's very good. So, so is that what eventually evolved with the Vortex group of companies or is that this, them injecting cash into your business? Um, yeah, well, so at the same time they were, they were communicating with um, James Sebs and Jim Sebs and, and Mobile Dewatering in Perth. Um, so they effectively invested in the little old Vortex Hire, which was probably 10 times smaller than M MDW at the time. Um, and quite quickly, so that was about December that we had completion. By August the next year, um, Mobile Dewatering was, was then sort of acquired by Andrew, Steve and, you know, Carnegie. And then that's when you kind of get on that next journey of, of Pumps United. So, because effectively there was Vortex Hire um, and then Mobile Dewatering, and they had a couple of sort of companies within that. And then it was kind of, well, how could, which makes no, there's no benefit to all operate separately. And that's when Pumps United came about. Mm. Yeah. And when, when that happened, we sort of thinking about, P sixty four again, where companies are getting merged together. No, no, the the no, because it was a specialist business that yeah. cared about customers and solutions. Yeah, so it, MDW was 
you know, all about that. And it was a ground up family business as well. So I think that was, that was okay. Similar culture and similar like uh, direction in what you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a no brainer. Mm. Yeah. And then, and then Vortex ended up becoming like his beast with like, I think it was like five different businesses within one, I think. Yeah. So I think hundred percent. Yeah. And we ultimately then with Gary Radford's Rhino, um, and Conher in Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, brought all the business together and it was a particularly unique time where, yeah, and that's a, that's a skill set of, of Andrew and Steve's definitely, um, and Matt's, um, is, is to bring these business owners in together and, and function in a, in a group that can scale. Like mm. it was pretty exciting at the time. That's not an easy thing to do. No, definitely not. Um, you know, there's some personalities in and amongst that. And yeah, we were all on a kind of common goal getting that sorted. So, and that's ultimately how we ended up being the Vortex Group again, because, you know, it didn't make any sense. Were we going to then open up a, have a Pumps United branch and then have a Rhino branch within the same city or geography? Um, so it made more sense to kind of realign that style of business um, mm. under the one brand so it, they're effectively the same company every every time we just kind of restructured the brand yeah. yeah yeah well like when that was all happening like i don't think i've ever seen a brand of like a group of companies or a company explode that fast. yeah, yeah it was fun yeah it a was, lot of work it was um i feel like everywhere i looked there was something to do with vortex yeah and it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then the other thing that i was exposed to was like people working there like just banging on about the culture and yeah. people having the same mentality and, and and working on a common goal yeah um, it was pretty cool yeah. but amazing bunch of people yeah definitely the whole way through the business yeah mm. and so when you look at when you started vortex hire and that that first job that went under and then you reflect on on that happening and scaling that business with some of the most influential people in the yeah. rental industry and bringing like all these leaders together to for a common goal like what were you thinking at that point oh it was incredible to be a part of you know i think you know it's such a challenge with rental companies because they're so asset intensive you know you feel like you I'm sure there is some status quo there somewhere, but particularly when you're small, you feel like you're either getting bigger or you're getting smaller and you're dead. Mm. So I think there was definitely this kind of feeling that we were doing you know, the right thing to scale the business, to get a, enough scale to, to make a difference within the market. And you know, it was just a, a fun time. Like I, I don't regret a, um, you know, a day of it. It was amazing, yeah, mm. yeah. And then, and then with that scale, you touched on the ability to be able to be efficient in the way that you invoice and, and your processes so they're lean, so yeah. you're not tied up. Like so many business owners I talk to, like they're up at midnight doing invoicing to try and just get out the door for the next day and they're just banging their head on the table. So yeah. as part of that transformation amongst those businesses, like you also managed a transformation onto a rental management software to be able to manage that process. And... So many companies go through this when they're, they're trying to scale uh, from one size to the next and trying yep. to figure out what that journey looks like. So I really want to talk about like the learnings on, on managing the change and that transformation process and some of the things maybe you might do differently potentially next time and just, just some insights for the listeners. Do you reckon any company ever gets that right, change? I think it's hard. I think you, you can't... The way I think of it is you... You're going to have like, it's just even a small business, you're going to have 10 people. You're not going to make every single person happy. Like everyone's going to have like their view of what needs to happen. But you need to make sure that like whatever decision you're making is going to impact them positively. Yeah. If you're making someone do more work for some reason, yeah, they're going to start hating their job and yeah. regret and hate the system or whatever it is. So I wouldn't say it's, it's uh, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. Um, it's not possible to make perfect, but what you can do is plan. The more you plan, definitely, the make it harder, easier, makes it later on. We, you know, I think it's definitely knowing why you're doing it and what you want out of it. Like, there's got to be some time spent on that. 
we had significant debate about what we were, so whether we were a, you know, a contracting company that rents or a rental company that contracts, and that seemed to underpin the discussion on what software was appropriate for us at the time. We already had um, a software system in, in Vortex Hire from quite early. Um, 2013, we would have had that in place. Um, but it was a, a quite a small concern. As we opened branches, when we were together with the equity kind of group, with the equity team, we kept rolling out that um, software within those branches. Um, but what we found is that there was a, the broader piece within um, MDW and the kind of w, WA business in Queensland where you know, they were doing a lot of contract work as well. So there was a, a significant debate about, about that. Mm. Um, getting through that conversation is, is tough, I think. Um, I wonder whether we spent too long debating it at some point. Um, and it was probably because there was quite a few opinions on what we were and what we weren't. But once we did lock in on what we were, getting that kind of, the, the lesson is that you kind of can't load your teams up with more work. So you've really got to have that implementation team. We found, you know, we, we had Grant Mack helping us with that and then some key people within the, the business, you know, um, our CFO at the time, um, Pat and Luke and mm. um, Nathan Corbell and Robbie and Trina and, and those guys. And we actually then basically formed a bit of an implementation team and, and kind of travelled to, to WA to kind of put that in. And I think the lesson is once you've made the decision is get it in fast. Like you can talk about it and say, let's train, let's scale, let's... We found that once we'd locked in on, on, the, on a timeline and delivered it, it was far better than doing it in stages. Mm. So we got to the point where we said, okay, right, we're literally going to send Queensland Live this month. And then within two months, we're going to send WA Live. We already had New South Wales Vic and, and SA on the platform. Um, and, and once we'd made the decision to do that quickly, it was... It was it was seamless because people once they get in the system generally see the benefits of it um, whereas if you too much bandwidth for for conversation mm. people worry about nothing some some days yeah and i think it's you know like the thing around building a team i think one of the challenges a lot of businesses go through is they say hey gil your job's to implement this product and then you've got a day job as well yeah and all the onus is on you where if you have like SMEs, like specialists for each department, like yeah. sales, rental, service, parts, financials, like whatever you want to do from the accounting side, like to almost like work together and then link up to like a project manager of yeah. sorts. Yeah, that's um, what Grant was for us. Yeah. yeah. Was he external? Yeah. Yeah. So I found that like having someone that's external from the business does help out a lot as well because yeah. they, they're not stuck in the day-to-day of your business. And they can break through any if there's, you know, we were, we were lucky. We were um, a, a non-political business. You know, we, we had a very flat structure and, you know, we could get on and, and do things. But having somebody external gives that, um, you know, different point of view and sort of can play referee a bit as well. And mm. I think if it's somebody that has that's too invested in the system internally, you obviously want your sponsors and you want people to be involved, but if they're pushing the wrong agendas, um, I think that's when the implementation can struggle a bit because mm. it, it doesn't get buy-in from enough people. Yeah, and, and what about like customizing the software? Do you think it's better to try and use out of the box first? Out of the box, 100%. Yeah, yeah. don't think you can reinvent a software system. Yeah, I've definitely seen scenarios where people um, yeah, they, they almost try to build their own version of the software mm. within the platform and they spend more money on the customer. Find a different box, I reckon. <laughs> if the out-of-the-box at one company is not right, go to a different box. Yeah. The second you think that you can, you know, you've got a process that's vastly different to somebody else, I think you struggle because you don't get the support out of the platform. It just ends up being this kind of, I don't want to use the word, but yeah, it's this horrible product that you can't use. Like mm. it's just not scalable. Yeah, and then probably is expensive you, to upgrade. And yeah, you got a patch and something else happens, and then all of a sudden you're doing another patch and another patch, and not out of the box. Yeah, like an iPhone. 
<laughs> exactly. It's yeah. trivial. That's simply it. Upgrade. Yeah. That's it. Um, so then, yeah, so we covered that. So you went through that transformation journey. And then from the external view, like I was watching Vortex group of companies just explode and just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then out of the blue, it was boom, being acquired by NPE. It just seemed to happen yeah. so fast for me. Yeah. And I think for, for us in the business, it, it wasn't fast because we were, you know, the majority of us as, as that team were together for seven years at that stage. So 2015 to, you know, or, or 21 or whatever it was, 21, 22. Um, so we'd been at it for a while. Mm. It was just a kind of rebrand. So it looked like I hadn't been around for, for a long time. Um, so I think that's the, the nutshell of, of that. And yeah. then, and then, so talk me through leading up to the acquisition. Was it was something that, like, obviously everyone was in greens because he sold. But yeah. was this was there much like, no, we can do more, or was it this is the right time? Oh, I think like why was NPE the right company? Well, I think what made NPE the right company was that they're, yeah, they're they're a specialist in the business. I, I think a company like. Coates would not have been a good fit for, for Vortex, um, but being acquired by another specialist business was good. Um, the fact that the, what made it particularly appealing is that markets were slightly different. So although MPE did play in the civil construction space, they were very much a mining business. Um, and Vortex was not at all a mining business, apart from some of the, you know, the, the well work we would do um, water delivery work we would do in in the Pilbara and things like that. Other than that, or for construction activity for mining, we weren't a mining-centric business. So to put those two businesses together was um, a, a completely logical mm. footprint. And it, it made the integration a lot easier because you didn't have me being a pump mining guru and you being a pump mining guru yeah. and go, well, I'm better at you know, yeah. pumps than you are. I was there servicing civil construction customers. You're there servicing mining customers, and we come together with a healthy respect. So that was that was cool. So that's why MPE was was a good transaction for us. Um, you know, and I think it was time for for us to kind of. You're always looking at, you know, what what does an exit look like for a business, and how do you kind of you know move through that life cycle. And it was just it was just the time for it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, some of us probably felt, um, you know, like another year or two we would have looked um, different again in that space. But you know, it, it was a good thing to do. Yeah. Mm. And then, so you stayed on with NPE for a bit. Yeah. Four months. Yep. Yeah. And, then, and then you you referenced that uh, you're you're half retired. Yeah. Half life retired. <laughs> half life retired. Yeah. Yep. So. Um, so talk me through that. So what was the decision around, around that? Um, I'd always said to kind of myself and, you know, Hillary and the, and the kids that, um, you know, at some stage that we would exit out of the business, some form of, you know, sale event or whatever, and that I was going to make a bit of time back up to them. Um, you know, it's a pretty intense period of time with the growth that we had through Vortex and, you know, starting the business from scratch with Chris. Um, you know, that's like 11 years ago. So it was, it was an opportunity to kind of do what I said I was going to do and just kind of chill out and focus on, on the family for a bit, really. Mm. Like it was, you know, it gets hard, I think, when you've started a business as well. You, t you do, I mean, I really do love that idea of, you know, influencing a business and, and a business can get too big for me, I think, some days. Um, I, I do like that sort of touch and feel with with people and customers and um and i think it was my time to do something different mm. yeah and then like 11 years of of let's just call it chaos yeah like yeah growth, full on like yeah. entrepreneurial like loving amazing times and then obviously really challenging times yeah just the, the grind is on yeah yeah and then to go to half-life retired yeah time is now just almost stopped like it's slow so yeah. like how, how's how's that been well it hasn't slowed it must be me so <laughs> that yeah because I, I feel my days in quite well i haven't uh i haven't turned the telly on and, and watched that yet at all 
Um, but d definitely, I mean, for the phone to, to stop ringing was, was weird. Um, but I didn't miss it at all. Uh, no, I quite, quite easily fill the days in. Yeah. <laughs> doing podcasts, mate. Oh, doing podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just chilling out with you. And so, so what does the future look like? You said half life retired. So there is a... Yeah, my dad retired at about 42 or 43 and it wasn't great for him. So I figure I'd better get back amongst it. Um, so yeah, I'm only 45, 46 next year. So I think I've... And these are nice working years too, I think. You know, you've still... You've had enough experience that you kind of know how the world ticks a little bit. But, um, you know... I, a number of kind of good years to then capitalise on some of that knowledge. Mm. And I think if, you know, people like Steve Donnelly or anything to, to take a bit of example off, uh, you know, there's a, there's a long time to go to stay interested and, and be amongst um, the industry. So I think, I don't know exactly what I'm gonna do, but I, I definitely wanna stay amongst the rental mm. industry. I mean, I, I love it. It's, it's the customers and people that I like being around. And yeah, I think I enjoy I was hoping I was going to spend some time in half-life retirement working out that I didn't enjoy rental. And I think I've spent time working out that's exactly what I love. Um, and I've tried a, a break from it before and it, and it didn't work. So, yeah. yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see if you follow like the similar path to Gary Radford. Like I was talking to him and he was... What, generators? He, no, 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 no. Just he's started another business. So basically... Um, I remember no offence, Gary. <laughs> I remember... <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna hate you. I love generators. <laughs> um, no, but I remember when he first started. Poor man's pump, apparently. <laughs> now you're gonna G him up. <laughs> so when he first started, it was like, oh, I'm gonna start small and just scale. I don't want to go anything too crazy. And yeah. then, like, fast forward, and now he's scaling like crazy. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether you take the approach where you want to just keep control or yeah. you want to go all in again. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the that's the juggle, isn't it? I, I think it's. You know, starting a, a business from scratch is, is hard work and, and can be a bit slow. So I think, you know, there's, that's probably what's happened with Gary a little bit too. There's some learnings, obviously, that he's got over the years that he's been able to accelerate some of that growth. Um, so it'd be interesting to see whether I can apply half of that, you know. Mm. And then so with all that experience, like when you reflect on some of the mentors, like you've mentioned Steve and Andrew and a few others, like yeah. who do you think really played a big influence on on you oh i mean definitely you know my, my early experience within shawco 100 percent. so the, the residual sort of you know geelan culture i think um yeah definitely richard purser definitely matt ball uh, i worked for matt ball for for many years on and off um and he was an unreal boss uh, learned a lot from him about you know balance and discipline as well like matt i think still gets up at I don't know, 3 a.m. He's like um, Mark Wahlberg or whatever his name is. He gets up and goes to the gym every day and, you know, puts in a massive day at work and then, and then goes off and does his stuff with, with home and family. So I think, you know, discipline and I, I learned a lot from, from Matt in that regard. You know, Mark Forbes is, is another person for me that's been a bit of a constant throughout my career. I was lucky enough to work with him again at, at Vortex. Um, absolutely just champion bloke, soul of the earth. Um, you know, he's, he's the guy that you just, you feel safe around. He's quite competent and capable. And, and I often, you know, try and, um, you know, get, get a bit of zen on when I'm around him to, you know, get, get that balance right. So definitely Forbesy. Um, you know, 100% Andrew and Steve. I've, you know, I love working with those guys. They've, they've been, um, you know, instrumental in, in the last kind of, you know, it feels like almost a decade, but, you know, seven years, those guys. And, and Gary, like, I learned a lot working with Gary. So that would be the, the people, you know, a, a among many. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, Gary Radford was, you know, he, he's a, very good at, I suppose, pushing to get something done, you know, where sometimes it's easy to procrastinate. He adds a bit of kind of flavour to that as, as you know you know him pretty mm. well yeah well he's obviously pushing to have more kids nine kids now <laughs> yeah I know right <laughs> time to take a half-life retirement on that <laughs> unbelievable it's crazy but nah, it's yeah definitely agree in terms of Gary and then if you uh, if you look back at, at 
young Gil, 21-year-old that's getting exposed to, to Shawco, and then other young people that were joining that business, if you were to give advice to them today around their journey in the industry and what to expect and what to expect to eventually how to, how to manage becoming a leader and stuff like that, like what would you, yeah. what would you say? Um, I, I think you never stop learning. I, I think I'd tell Gil... Um, 20, maybe 20-year-old 20 Gil to take his mum to the um, Apprentice of the Year Awards, not his, not, not his dad. Sorry, mum. But maybe calm the farm for a bit. It's definitely an industry. And I think Nathan Venables spoke to you about this as well. It's, it's an industry you get, you get out of it what you put in. It's, it's definitely an industry that, you know, discretionary effort and you know applying yourself can get you anything like it's a particularly unique business i think in that yeah anyone can have opportunity in this business so for for someone young coming in if you love it go for it like you can you can run one of these massive national companies or you can start your own thing like it's mm. so diverse yeah and yeah. i think the, the, the thing i love about the rental industry is that there's so many different avenues. Like I always yeah. use the example, like the extreme one. Let's say you love concrete for whatever yeah. reason. Like can I have concrete care? Yeah. And you can specialize in that. Or you, you love transport. You can yeah. manage transport. You like servicing or a specific type niche of, of product. Like there's, it's not like it's just one thing and you're working on that. You can move around and learn different skills. Yeah. And I think if you're keen to kind of have a bit of a go and definitely if you're going to, if you, if you can move, it makes a difference you know i think if you're gonna stay in one location and kind of say well I'm, I'm gonna be the branch manager one day it could take you 25 years to get there so i think if you're keen and a bit aspirational then kind of be open to saying yes for a while and be mm. that a move or be that a different role um you know i've always said yes to to everything and pretty much kind yeah. of winged it from there. Yeah, yeah Greg Parfit spoke on his podcast, that's the Orange Hire CEO, yeah. about um, he, when he looks back at his career, one thing that he, he only did later in his career was actively manage his career. And um, you can say yes to all sorts of things, but like that, what's best for the company, but what's best for me for the next yeah. few years. And um, I think it's really important for young people to take on as much as possible Definitely. and and to push their boundaries in and what they think they can do and what they can learn. But then you get to a point where then you need to start making some strategic decisions around what's best for you and your family and, and yeah. whatnot. And I think some, retirement yeah. and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think sometimes people, they, they, they say yes. And then they get caught in the whirlwind or the treadmill. I always say, yeah. And like 25 years goes by and you're like, wait a second. Like I've just been on the grind for so long. So yeah. you, You'd be able to take a step back and then reevaluate and, and actively measure your and, and manage your career as well. Yeah, I think people often get that kind of aha moment, don't they? Where they they kind of reflect and and have that adjustment. Yeah, but yeah. I yeah. think it comes from two main areas. One is they get pissed off. Yeah, so someone pisses them off yeah. at work. Whether yeah, it be a manager, a coworker, yeah. a business, uh, or two, they see someone else doing it and they're like, "Wait a second he's doing or she's doing it why can't i do it so i think those are two like very common yeah. things and then obviously there's other things as well that pain funds but yeah I, I think if if you don't have the right culture within your company like you've probably maybe setting a fire onto one of the employees to go off and start a competing business eventually yeah definitely yeah i mean it's yeah trying to kind of keep that culture right is is key otherwise people will leave mm. like it's you know, if you can work out, either do it organically and, you know, buy some equipment and kind of do your own thing and take your own time and be conservative, then the barriers to entry aren't that great. Like, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. as long as you can get the right finance agreements in place and, the, and you've got the network of customers, it's definitely there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've got to know your staff. You've got to, I think you've got to know what customers you're servicing, mm. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then, so finally... Uh, when you look back at all that, like how do you define success? I'm not exactly sure. Still working through that. I think, um, you know, if, if you can do what you love, kind of make a bit of money doing it, not disrespect your family while you're at it. 
I think that kind of mix, that balance, um, is as close to success you're going to get. So, you know, you keep your health right and keep your family right and love what you do. That's got to be close to it. Mm. Yeah, and if you oversupply any of those things too much, then it just yeah. can affect everything Yeah, else. I mean, that's the journey, isn't it? That it's getting that balance right. But, you know, to, to, to keep your family intact and happy and safe and, you know, have customers that think you're awesome and, you know, staff that have careers and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, with or without you during those journeys. If you can get all of that kind of happening and keep, keep some health about you, I think you're getting there. Mm, yeah. no, very much, very much so. All right, Gil, well, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Thanks, Mark. It was unreal. Thank you. Thank you.